Courtney Jameson is Nuku31. She is a jeweller, artist and a lapidist, someone who cuts and shapes precious stones. Through her business, Courtney Marama, she designs bespoke jewellery, handcrafted in precious metals and set with gemstones from Aotearoa, mainly working with Ponamu. Her unique approach to Ponamu marries tradition with innovative design, shaping delicate pieces not commonly made from this taonga. In this episode, we talk about her upbringing in Cambridge, her sustainable approach to craftswomanship, and being a new mama. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kia hine. Kia ora, Courtney. Kia ora. <laughs> we have driven from Tamaki today to you in beautiful Cambridge and um, are here in your cute little studio <laughs> um, to talk to you about some amazing mahi that you are doing in the jewellery space. Before we get into that, um, we always start with a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Right. So can you share with us a bit about sure. where and where you're from? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm Courtney and I grew up in Cambridge, born and bred. Um, and I moved away for probably about 12 years and I'm back here again, <laughs> full circle, um, with my partner and my baby. And I am a jeweller, or a goldsmith and a... Um, gemstone cutter and you had described I, I had sent you some questions beforehand and you had described yourself as a lapidist yes <laughs> I've changed I don't use that word anymore well, people are like what's that <laughs> I had to google I'm like what's a lapidist and you know what the funniest thing was we just asked Siri so I was like hey Siri what's a lapidist and Siri goes a leftist <laughs> And then started sending all these descriptions about leftists. I was like, uh, no. <laughs> um, so a lapidist is the, is the like technical official yeah. terminology? So lapidary, lapidry is someone who cuts stones to fit into jewellery or to metal. Oh. Um, rather than like say a ponamu carver is someone who carves more traditional Ponamu, whereas my process is very different. So I'm more of a lapidary or lapidist artist, but I just say gemstone cutter now because it's more to the point and people don't look <laughs> people as confused. It better. <laughs> so you grew up in Cambridge. Um, what what was that like? Because I, my stereotype of Cambridge is that everyone in Cambridge owns a big house and rides horses. Yeah. Is that? That's pretty much what everyone says when you say you're from Cambridge. Like, oh, so do you want to have a horse? <laughs> like, uh, no. What was your upbringing like in Cambridge? Uh, my upbringing was pretty, you know, uh, in this day and age, you'd probably say privileged, pretty, um, you know, I grew up, my parents, my mum's a primary school teacher, um, my dad was a, like a steel fabricator, kind of um, sandblaster guy, um, and yeah, we grew up just kind of average, typical did, did I say, but like Kiwi, you know, family. We 
went on holidays, to, you know, camping holidays and things like that, you know, to um, Coromandel and stuff like that. So Cambridge, we, I mean, we didn't have horses or, you know, big houses, although mum now, she has a nice house, but, um, you know, it wasn't typically always like that. But, yeah, I think people's perspective of Cambridge is, I mean, there is lots of horses, mm. but... It's, but there's other things as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't actually, any of my friends, none of them had horses. <laughs> We're not your typical Cambridge people. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you know, was your childhood um, quite creative? Where did this sort of... <sighs> my mum always jewelry uh, wonders from? this because my sister's creative as well. She's a florist and, you know, my mum's a primary school teacher. But it, I... It, wasn't always creative, but I wasn't like my dad was a his hobby was milling wood. So my um, my dad's passed away now, but my jewelry bench was a dining table that he had made. So he did the steel work, he milled the wood, you know, um, the cody on the top, and did all that kind of stuff. So if you go into my mum's house, all of her she's got like big raw bench tops of big raw chunks of you know code, swamp cody wood and things like that. So. We're all guests, I don't know, I think it came probably from my dad mm. in that sense of he's just a hands-on person and I've, I've always been a hands-on person. I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't a school, I mean, I wasn't that typical. I didn't like school. I wasn't, didn't like sitting at a desk mm. being told this is what you have to do. Um, so, yeah, I think dad would be where the hands come from. And so you moved, um, when you got older, you moved down to Wellington yeah. and were looking to study down there, but it didn't quite go to plan. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think yeah, me and my best friend at the time moved to Wellington. Uh, I was 17. It was just to get out of Cambridge, get out of small town crap. Um, and we moved to Wellington. It was the best thing I've ever done. Um, Wellington's such a cool city. Like, it's so just... I don't know, free, you just do what you want, wear what you want, mm. be, you know. And I think I'd never seen that before, you know, small town Cambridge where it's quite, you know, I don't know, horsey and nice, <laughs> um, you know. So it was quite cool to do that. And I went thinking, oh, I'll go to uni or do whatever everybody else does when they leave school, not knowing what on earth I was going to do. And went to university for about two weeks. And then I was like, oh, no, I don't like that. What am I doing? <laughs> so I kind of left Flitted about for a bit, went, ended up going for some reason to a design school. Um, and then that was cool. I did a bit of graphic design for about a year. That was my first year. And then dad passed away. So I came home for a bit and then went back to Wellington. And I think after that, it kind of just changed. I didn't want to sit at a computer or do graphic design. I didn't, I didn't really know kind of anything really. I mean, I was only 18 and still, you know, I just, God knows what I did <laughs> in Wellington. What I do know is that you were a hippie yeah, yeah. Um, and had long red dreads. I was your typical, if you are from Wellington and you know Wellington, you'd like, I was, there's like a, well, there was when I was there, I lived there for probably six years, like a good hippie scene. You know, I was the typical long haired dreadlocks, long skirts, bare feet, kind of yeah. rolling the streets of Cuba Street. <laughs> But that it kind of led you to jewellery in a sense that you started creating um, your first iteration of <laughs> jewellery design. Yeah. yeah. Um, what 
Can you describe what that jewellery was like when you first started out? Yeah, so I think I got randomly got um, a job, part-time job at a bead store, mm-hmm. the um, Tiger Eye Beads it was called. And it was just, I, I didn't even really know jewellery existed or jewellery making existed. It, it was never on my radar. I never thought that that was a career path or anything. Um, and I started working at the bead store and people could come in. It was quite cool. You had a big table set up and all the beads on the walls and people would come in and get the beads down and you'd help them thread beads on and make necklaces and things mm-hmm. like that. And, yeah, I just loved it. Um, and then I started making my own, like, kind of <laughs> woven beaded or, you know, like wrapped crystal necklaces and things like that Um, was my jam for a bit (laughs) and kind of sold them at markets and then kind of, yeah, one of the girls that worked there, she was studying silversmithing, which I had no idea even you could study that. And so she invited me to go up to a campus one day and check it out. And that was it. From that, I just signed up pretty much the next day and was like, that's what I'm doing. Wow. I'm, I'm coming. <laughs> where was that? Was that still in Wellington? Uh, it was out in, God, where is it? Lower Hutt, Upper Hutt. Um, and it's called The Learning Connection. So mm-hmm. again, it's your typical, if you know what it is, you probably laugh at it. It's your typical alternative art school. Mm. So... Um, yeah, the, all the buildings are painted like bright colours <laughs> and it has like a school bus that picks you up if you lived in Wellington City and it was always, I remember like being embarrassed to get on it because it was like brightly coloured, you know, like this, it was, yeah. <laughs> and if, if you meet somebody that was went to like Massey Uni or something, they're like, so where do you study? And you said the learning connection, they'd always kind of feel like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh you're one of those, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it it was it was completely hands on. So there's no there was no paperwork, which is what worked for me. Yeah, it was five days a week, hands on working at the jewelry bench, or going down and making knives at the blacksmithing area, you know, mm. or going and doing um, pottery, you know. So it was it was just yeah, hands on, hundred mm. percent. Did you did you decide then? Um, that it was going to be sort of fine jewellery that you were going to move into or like uh, between that and knives. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but did, did that really hone your skills to the point where you thought, okay, this is the direction I want to go in or did it just cement the fact that you wanted to be a jewellery maker but not quite the niche? Yeah, I think it just cemented the fact that I wanted to be a jewellery maker. I didn't... Yeah, I think it's taken me a few years definitely to get to this point now. I think it took me so long to find my style um, and no, it was just there. I just wanted to make jewellery. I probably didn't even care what kind of jewellery. Mm. I just wanted to make things and there was no stone cutting or carving there, um, which I didn't even know existed really either until further down the track. So it was mostly just learning your basic but necessary kind of silversmithing techniques. Mm. Um, I was just talking to you earlier about, you know, one of the things that I started following you for um, was your really unique way of using ponamu and that I hadn't seen um, ponamu cut and crafted in the style that you do with rings, with earrings, with, you know, different bits of jewellery. Yeah. Um, we're so used to seeing ponamu being carved 
as heitiki or, or um, you know, larger um, pendant pieces. And there are there are other types of ponamu jewellery like um, bands for yeah. rings and bands for bracelets, but still not what you do. Mm. And that was that really fascinated me. What what got you into um, adding ponamu into your work yeah. and you know, where did this idea of uh, making en- engagement rings and very fine cut um, sort of ponamu pieces come from? Um, I think I always wanted to use New Zealand gemstones. There was, it wasn't, wasn't really a thing, you know, because we don't have that much. We've got ponamu and like you say, it was always traditional, you know, bigger pieces. And then one of my tutors, who he was only teaching silversmithing, but he did a bit of carving on the side. And he kind of set me up a little bit and was like, oh, why don't you try this out? You know, make some cabochons, which is a, a oval stone to go in a, a ring. Um, and I did that and I just loved it. And then I went down south. My teachers hooked me up with the guy down south who was the tutor at the Taipotini Polytechnic and he was teaching jade and hard stone carving. So I went down there and learned a bit more about stone carving um, and ponamu. And I think once I went down there, um, the west coast, the South Island, like that, you know, that's where all the ponamu comes from. That's you know the hub for that kind of thing. And I just you just kind of go deep into it when you get there. It's a whole nother world. Mm. And then I realised like, okay, I can do this. I can use ponamu for my rings. And at that stage, I was just making kind of your normal, you know, ovaled cabochons. And then I think just the more I did it, the more I realised that people wanted it as well. Mm. You know, it was hard hard to make something and you're always scared that no one's going to want it or no one's going to like it. And I'm like, is this too modern or too contemporary for people or am I going to get in trouble for doing it this way? Mm. You know, I don't know. And then... I think just, yeah, the more I did it, the more people wanted it. And then slowly it evolved from people being like, oh, well, do you, you know, can I wear this for my wedding ring? And I'm like, of course you can. Why not? And then, yeah, slowly it evolved to me faceting it rather than, you know, I was like, what can I do different that, you know, nobody else really does Mm. in New Zealand? And I guess, you know, you just touched on it about... um, whether the way that you use ponamu, how people respond to that, yeah. and is that um, acceptable? Because ponamu, we've seen it um, in a particular way our entire lives as part of our cultural heritage, and this is a different way. It's and it's a more modern contemporary style. Have you been criticised? For that yourself, have you have you faced any of that, or or has no. it mainly been just all the beautiful acceptance? Yeah, thank God. <laughs> I mean, there might be people behind the scenes, but no one has. Um, and I think um, you you got to respect or know what you're doing or using and how mm. you're using it. And I think if I was making all these gemstones and selling thousands of them, and or you know, like not really understanding the material, it would be different. Mm. And I, you do see a lot of that, not so much like in my style, but that kind of thing. And luckily most people just say to me, where have you been my whole life? Because <laughs> I have been looking for you and, you know, I'm so glad to have found you because mm. I want 
something more special to, you know, to them rather than a diamond, you know? Yeah, it's a really beautiful way. One of my, um, one of my friends was married, oh, I think two years ago now, and um, she was looking for a ponamu, or she was looking for some kind of ponamu to reflect their relationship and their marriage, and I sent her your link. Oh, yeah. Um, and when she sort of saw the ring, she was just like, this is exactly the way that I, you know, I want a ring that looks like an engagement ring, but I want something that speaks to me as a, as a wahine Māori yeah. um, in this space. And so, yeah, personally, um, obviously I'm already fangirling, but, <laughs> but I do, yeah, I do think it's a very, very cool way of being able to reflect our cultural heritage um, while also having something quite pretty. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So have you moved, has your business sort of morphed into being quite a heavy wedding dominant market? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that's probably 90% of what I do now. Yeah. Wedding and engagement rings, um, which is really nice. I think it, it slowed me down rather than in the beginning, you think you've got to make lots and you've got to get your stuff out there. And then I've really peeled back in these last few years and I've slowed down and I'd rather want to make less things with more intention rather than mm. trying to make lots of things with less intention, we, you know, mm. things that are more, yeah, taonga, they're going to be special, they're going to be handed down and they're going to be looked after. Mm. I, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about you feeling comfortable in your identity um, because your business name changed, uh, I want to say recently, but it probably was a little It was a while couple of years now. ago now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons for that was you wanted to stand in your identity more. Yeah. Can you talk to me about being a business owner and sort of when you first started your business, why you, um, why you had one name and why you've changed it to your specifically your name yeah. and what that meant for you? Yeah, I think in the beginning, or especially as an artist, I mean, that's the only way I know it from, but you're putting yourself out there, you know, you're putting your heart or your work out there. And I chose to not put my first name, no Courtney, it was Marta Majori, mm -hmm. because then I felt like people didn't know me or they couldn't judge me because it wasn't me. It was more of a brand or a, you know, um, and it was a way much easier to hide behind that. And then the more I did it, the more I grew more comfortable and proud, I think, of what I was doing. And then finally just kind of went, I mean, it probably took me years, probably took me three or four years mm -hmm. of being Marta Majori. And still to this day, people were like, oh, you're Marta Majori. And I'm like, actually, I'm Courtney Marta Majori now. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> but yeah, then I think, I realised that no, like this is stupid and if I, I need to be proud of what I do and I am and so I need to have my work, my name with my work mm. and, and it makes it more personal and, you know, I'm not a brand and I don't know why I thought I was a brand in the beginning, you know. Mm. It's handmade jewellery that I make from scratch. Like there's no, yeah. I don't know, it's... Can you... Can you talk me through a little bit of the process? Um, because if we're making it from scratch, that also means moulding 
you know, silver or gold or whatever yeah. metal you're working with. Um, can you talk me a little bit through the process of, say, if I was getting a ring made? Yeah. What's your process from from the time you walk on the beach to, <laughs> to possibly picking up the stone, the okay. gemstone? And I'm not talking about pronomi here. I'm talking yeah. about like any other gemstone. Um, yeah. What. What is that process? Basically, depending on the stone, like you say, um, it's, I mean, with Ponamu, I've got a box of offcuts, which are basically rubbish to everybody, or like other carvers, because they're so tiny. Mm. But then a lot of the other stones have been collected off beaches and things like that. And then it's basically coming in, well, not, you don't have to come in online and choosing start your stone your colour, you know, anything like that. And then basically I'll cut the stone on my little faceting machine, which is um, pretty much faceting a gemstone is from like the 1800s. It comes from the Czech Republic. So it's a really old, ancient technique that actually hasn't changed much Mm. in its process. Um, And then you've got the metal, which again is from thousands of years ago, BC, you know, thousands of years BC before you even, the process again is the same. You're melting the metal, you're folding it, you're hammering it, you're beating it to form, you know, I fabricate most of my work, so that's all handmade. Um, And then, you know, you're setting a gem into that. So it's, there's a lot of different, and then again, there's a lot of different ways of making one ring. So you might, there's another way is carving wax um, and then casting that into metal, which is another ancient technique. So it's, there's a lot of steps involved and then there's a lot, it depends completely on how you, what you want or, you know, mm. the type of stone where it comes from, the type of metal, how you want it made or, or the design and it will change how it is made. And you were um, you were saying earlier, and I actually saw it on face on um, Instagram, um, <laughs> <laughs> that you sometimes, well, quite often, um, will find gemstones um, in certain parts of Aotearoa as you're walking along the beach, yeah, and knowing what you're looking at, and then being able to find something. I mean, what what sort of the most unusual or amazing thing you've found that maybe you were quite surprised that you found? Oh, um, probably uh, there's two. One would be my first piece of Ponamu that I found on the beach when I was living on the West Coast. Um, that was obviously, I've been, you know, when you go there, everyone combs, you know, the beach. You're like, I'm going to find my piece of Ponamu. And my the guy that I was living with, um, he always said, you know, and I think it's a lot of the coasters say that, but you don't find the Ponamu, the Ponamu will find you. Mm. So, you know, when you're ready, it will find you. And a lot of people will comb those beaches, like, for years and never find a piece, you know. And so it was finding my little... I was, I was walking along the shore and it was kind of... The sun was going down and the waves were just lapping at my feet and then just there it was, boom, this bright little piece of, you know, Ponamu. Um, and then the second piece would be in the Coromandel... And it was a piece of carnelian, but the colour of it is like, I thought it was a piece of brown beach glass, you know, like that brown mm, bottle glass. Yeah. And then normally I wouldn't pick it up, but this one I picked up because I was like, that doesn't look quite right. And I picked it up and it's just this deep, the deepest, richest, brownie, reddy, tiny, and it's only tiny, but for me that's perfect. You know, I love tiny stones. Mm. Um, 
And so it would be that for me. I've kept that and I'm going to make myself a ring out of that one day when I get the time. And just before everybody goes and rushes to the West Coast, (laughs) they can just take Pronamu. Probably good to point out that there are rules around around Pronamu that come from the South Island and... um, that there are protocols that yeah. have to be followed and um, that's how, you know, just investigate those through Ngaitahu yeah, and, and do those that way, Fano. Don't just go <laughs> rushing down to the beach yeah. and thinking you can find yourself a piece of phone number and take it home. <laughs> or up the river. Someone will be there to tell you to leave. <laughs> um, the other... The other... Well, sort of, sorry, not the other thing, but um, part of you... When I say hunting and gathering, <laughs> <laughs> some of these stones that are on the beach is that you plan holidays around the fact that you, <laughs> yeah. you want to go somewhere that where you can have a look for these particular stones. Yeah, um, it helps that your your husband is also a um, stone carver, yeah. so yeah. you're both kind of looking for really yeah. similar things. Um, we do fight over it, like who got the best one. <laughs> but how how prevalent? Are gemstones at our beaches because I, you know, I go to the beach, uh, or even I go, you know, anywhere that's near a river or a beach, and I see normal river stones, <laughs> yeah. and I see, um, well, I live in a volcanic area, so I see lots of scoria rocks, yeah, um, and I find shells, and sometimes I'll find pretty shells, but yeah. I've never, <laughs> I've never found. A gemstone. Nah. So there, there's only very specific areas around New Zealand that you can you find them. Tell us where they are. But <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of books that will tell you. Um, but no, I think yeah, you've got to know where to go and in those specific areas what you're going to find in them. Mm. Um, Auckland doesn't have much. Um, so small places like Canterbury, they've got lots of say like amethyst, quartz crystals, agates. Um, the Coromandel region's got lots of the same sort of thing. Waikato doesn't have much. You know, you've got the Karangahake Gorge, that's where I just went, which has got little crystals, but not, you know, not much. So, yeah, it's just little pockets throughout New Zealand mm-hmm. that have them, and you've got to know what you're looking for, otherwise you can just walk over top of them. And so they would have washed down... Down the rivers. Down the rivers yeah. and then kind of settle somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you can either go up the rivers or walk along the beaches if you mm-hmm. know where the rivers come out as to where they, you know, will end up beach tumbling. So you'll find if they're on the beach, they'll be a lot smoother because they've been um, beach tumbled over and over again in the waves, whereas if they're in the river, they haven't gone as far, mm-hmm. so they'll be a lot more raw. And again, we're talking like quite small pieces here. We're not talking well, huge, big... No, nah, not huge ones, but <laughs> I am a sucker for tiny gems so that's what I look for whereas my partner he thinks that they're pointless to him so he looks for bigger pieces that would be more useful for him yeah um so you do find bigger bits but not the smaller pieces seem to be more gem quality more high quality rather than bigger chunks Mm. which is great for me (laughs) and it's it's really cool way of treasure hunting with your kids I think because a lot of the time <clears throat> Excuse me. I think people have this disconnection between um, where some of these gems come from, and it's it's sort of like it's not like food, but it's sort of like food. You know, yeah. you go to the supermarket and you don't. Lots of people these days don't necessarily make the association with what they're purchasing in a packet or what they're purchasing from the supermarket. Actually, has grown 
yeah, <laughs> in this in this farm or on this you know property, and it's come from the ground, and you can grow it at home, and and there is a little bit of a disconnect um, with some people around food, and so I think we often <laughs> have a have a similar disconnect around jewellery and not thinking that these gems come from the whenua, um, that they're not just something you purchase in a shop, that they were once part of our our maunga or inside our caves or um, part of the the flesh of papatonuku that that we're all on um, and then have formed into another life. And and we know, a lot of us know the stories of diamonds and I think often um, hear some of the really horrible stories around blood diamonds yeah. and and what it's like um, to get that stone out of the earth. Yeah. And if you think of foraging yeah. <laughs> as opposed to mining yeah. for these stones, it's a much more... Um, I guess it, it aligns more with kaitiakitanga yeah, yeah, and looking absolutely. after our environment at the same time. And and if we're just um, having a little a little hunt with our whanau, yeah. and I just think, you know, I'm just thinking about my daughter and how um, she wouldn't have a clue what she's picking up at the moment. <laughs> She'd probably put it in her mouth. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, what what things we are able to find on our coast and, and that we just forget that these things are actually just part of our normal environment. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's exactly it. And I think that's what I like why I like to share it, a lot of what I do online, you know, because people have, you know, whether they've lost the connection or they just don't, you just don't know where, you would never thought about where that gem from your ring comes from, you Mm. know, and I think you need to, it needs to be known more, you need to think about that more, about what, where it's come from, who dug it up, you know, what Mm. they did to get that, it's... It's quite, I don't know, the more you dig into that kind of stuff, the darker it kind of gets. Yeah. So I think that's one of my main things was always New Zealand gemstones and knowing, you know, knowing their whakapapa, where they came from, you know, it's, I think it's important you need to have a connection to that, to know, to understand mm-hmm. it. And then, yeah, rather than, oh, this diamond or this, you know, thing, I got it from Michael Hill Jeweller and... That's the end of the story. Yeah, you know? don't know the fuck up yeah. where actual all the pieces come from. Yeah. Do you um, do you know much about where New Zealand? You know, gemstones. I always just think of. Um, I call them the hippie shops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, I know exactly shops, what you mean. <laughs> shops that sell the gemstones. They've got incense in them, and you know, those shops. Do you um, have much of an idea as to whether or not those gemstones actually come from New Zealand, or where our where nah. where do when we go into the shops and we find these amethysts and yeah. you know the things that we often buy, um, where where are they commonly coming from? Yeah, so they're definitely not coming from New Zealand unless it states it's from New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, but majority is not. So they're often coming from places like India, um, Africa, like all those kind of g- generally third world countries that are mineral rich. Mm. So, yeah, a lot of it's... I don't know. I, it's it's a contradiction to what you're buying them for. If you look into where it's come from, mm. it's kind of I don't know. I mean, some of them aren't. Don't get me wrong. Like definitely, some of them aren't, but a lot of them are not. Don't come from nice places. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> I. <laughs> I'm now just thinking about how how many people. <laughs> Kind of buy gemstones for 
healing and for positive things. And again, just exactly as you said, really need to think about the fact that they probably didn't come from very positive healing environments. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have a, a piece that you have made yourself that is a favourite? It's like saying, oh, do you have a favourite child? <laughs> but um, that is a favourite or a standout that oh. has been quite a, that has an interesting story to it. Oh, God. Not, I can't think of one particular piece of jewellery that I've made. I'm just trying to think. The only, I'm wearing the only thing I'm wearing right now, which I didn't really make, is this here, which you can't see. Um, but it's a piece of carnelian that I found off in the Coromandel, um, which we've drilled a hole through, and it was tied onto my baby's mocha cord tie. Oh, beautiful! Um, and now I've got it on my chain around my neck. Beautiful. Um, that's about as you know, mine's my special one. Or is the rest of them? I, don't, I think I go through phases. I make something, I love it, I wear it, and then I get bored of it. <laughs> and then I'll make something else and then I'll wear it and then you're bored of it. And, um, but you have the luxury of being able to make something else yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so talking about your baby, you just recently became a mama. Yes. How has becoming a mama changed your world? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> um, it's definitely changed it. I, I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's, uh, you can't even explain like what it is like to be a mama. But I think I thought it was going to be a lot easier to work and have a baby. Um, like, yeah, no, they, they sleep all the time, right? They just sleep all day and all night. Um, but no, she doesn't really sleep. So it's definitely changed it, but it also puts things into perspective again of how, and especially after lockdown, putting my world into perspective of how I want to work, how we want to work as a family, mm-hmm. um, and actually feeling like I know that I am in the right place and I'm doing the right thing. I work from home. You know, I only make small, you know, I don't pump out a lot of work. I work slowly. I have time, you know, we both, my, me and my partner both work from home. So we just, you know, juggle the baby and the work and we just, yeah, I think you just kind of puts your life into perspective mm-hmm. of how you want to live, really. Mm. So <laughs> when I had my daughter, being being a, a mama of a courtedal, yeah. um, I felt... Uh, and I don't have a son, so I actually don't know the difference between <laughs> whether or not I'd feel the same. Yeah. But I felt a different sense of responsibility um, raising an Indigenous woman. Yeah. And what I wanted her to know and how I wanted her to be in this world and the things that I wanted her to experience and the things I didn't want her to have to experience. Yeah. Um, as a as another mama of a courtedal, yeah. um, have you had any of those thoughts and has has that um, impacted uh, your parenting or your vision around parenting? Um, I have, I guess, but also she's so young, I think I've just try like try to look not too far ahead mm. at this time. But yeah, I think it's hard, like little things. Like, you know, being a wahine, little things like thinking ahead of how am I going to tell people? We like People already say, like, why is she wearing, not wearing all pink? And I'm like, but mm. what, like, we don't really dress her in pink, you know? <laughs> like, th- little things like that where you try and break down the stigma of what th- th- is supposed to be. Mm. Um, just, yeah, I think, I don't know, it's just showing her that, she can do what she wants to do, you know, and not having to 
worry about what people think. Mm. Like I found growing up that was the hardest part was worrying about what people thought was horrible for some reason. You just constantly think, you sh- I don't know, should I do this? Does, you know, nobody actually cares what you're doing, God, but at the time you think it's it's everything. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's hard. And she's only so young. I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And she's probably going to be a better gem collector on the beaches because she's lower to the ground and shorter (laughs) and we're going to be all fighting for them. (laughs) Now, going from young to um, possibly older, who knows? Who is an Indigenous woman that has inspired you? Okay. Um, Probably, I would say there's a a few. People like uh, Nika Moa. Do you know her work? She does, like, you know, um, Ponamu, but same thing, and then more of a contemporary form, mm. which I don't, you don't see a lot of. Um, and someone like Lisa Rehana, people like that, who do have their art forms and, yeah, more contemporary, but, you know, using Māoridom and, you know, Ponamu or that kind of stuff and making it different with their mm. own. Um, it's probably yeah. Um, with your with your Fano, mm-hmm. um, is it your mum or your dad that has fucked up Māori? Your mum, my nan. Yeah. Were you? Were, did you grow up much connected to your um, Māori heritage? Not as no, no. Nah. Um, now or you know, in the last probably ten or so years, my Fano, my mum, and my mum's sister, and you know, my cousins, and my nan have all started to, you know, look back at all of that and mm. and learn a lot of it because, you know, my nan, she grew up, she in Maunga Tautari, um, which is our Maunga, but she was kind of not, not whangai into a family, but, you know, brought into a family and she was the only Māori one there that she had a baby with an English, you know, husband and, and yeah, her nan, her mum before that was... You know, they were, she was a cleaner for the white people, you know, mm-hmm. but yet she was uh, the wife of their brother. But, you know, like, oh. so she, but she was yet, that she was their cleaner because she was Māori. She wasn't on this, you know, same level. And I think, yeah, so my nan was never taught much. And, you know, it was that whole era of, you know, you don't speak Māori, you mm-hmm. don't do any of that. Um so, yeah, I think it, it got, all got a bit lost. Mm. But now, now it's nice that everyone, we're all kind of looking back and starting to revive a bunch of that. And it's nice for my nan. I guess the difficulty of having that sort of disconnection from that is that your mum misses out a little bit and then you guys miss out a little yeah. bit. And... Um, it's, yeah, what I'm trying to say is the difficulty of that happening with your nan, um, yeah, is that, you know, it does filter down yeah. through the generations and then you have to spend a lot of time relearning. Yeah. Relearning absolutely. who you are yeah. and relearning your papa. Has there been um, ways that you guys have tried to do that that has helped with that process? Have you been able to reconnect with certain places or certain whānau or certain people that have helped you guys 
put some of those pieces together? Um, yeah, I mean, I think my nan is still connected to her marae, you know, and to Manga Tautari. Um, so just, I think, um, and Manga Tautari is, you know, that's our maunga, and it's actually a beautiful maunga because it's a bird sanctuary and it's got, you know, it's and it's beautiful. So often, you know, before I had my baby, um, you know, Johnny and I would just go for walks, you know, and you drive past the marae and then you'd park up and you go for walks up, up there and it's beautiful and, and being able to know all the stories, you know, from Nan, you know, and her, um, their family... Um, gave some of their farmland to the reserve, you know, and things like that. So it's really nice to be able to connect there and have all of that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's nice to have my mum and my auntie and all, you know, everyone, you know, learning Rayo and doing all that kind of stuff to revive it all back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just one of us or, you know. Yeah, doing it as a whanau yeah. together. Yeah. And I and I get you... Um, you know, there's nothing beats actually feeling the weight of yeah. your tupuna whenua and going to be, you know, standing there and actually just reconnecting by physically being. Yeah, yeah. What What is it like to be uh, an Indigenous woman today in Aotearoa? Um, well, I mean, if you looked at me, you probably would not think I'm much of an Indigenous woman. I'm not your typical, you know. Um, but so I probably... You know, I don't have. I'm I'm privileged. You know, I'm I was I'm the one that, you know, nothing. My skin color or you know nothing made it harder for me. Mm. Um, so I think we have. You know, I have the job to make it easier for other indigenous wahine to get to these places. You know. Um, so yeah, I think for me it's unfortunately or fortunately been a, a pretty straightforward road in that sense. But also it's hard to find to feel like you are enough indigenous enough to relearn everything, mm. you know? Or yeah, like you're just from Cambridge, aren't you? Like, mm. like that's kind of what I feel like. People are like, well, why are you learning that? And you're like, well, actually, you know, I know my papa and, you know, my awa and where I'm from, my mona and all of that. But I'm learning it because it's who I am. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where we um, sometimes have to stop and think about what, um, think about how much other ideas and other ideals of what an Indigenous woman is influences us as Indigenous women. Yeah. And absolutely. so thinking about the fact that um, non-Māori or non-Pacifica or non-Indigenous people will see fair skin and go, oh, you're not Indigenous because you're not brown enough. Yeah. Or you don't have a moko kawai or you don't have a whatever, whatever, whatever that is supposed to make you more Indigenous than anybody else. Um, and what we must always remember uh, is that that's a colonised view of what yeah. Indigenous people are and that to have papa is to be indigenous. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I really understand where, you, where you're coming from in that korero. Um, knowing then what, an, you know, how you live as an indigenous woman today, what is your hope for the future of indigenous women? Um, 
I think that they that it, there's more opportunities. I think more, you know, especially for me, like in the creative or business field, more opportunities, more ways. You know, like running a business is it's not easy. And there's the old saying of, if you knew how hard it was, you would never do it, you mm. know, because especially, and especially a creative business, you know, I only make jewellery 30% of the time. The rest of the time I'm taking photos. I've got to be a photographer. You've got to be a social media expert. You've got to be a, you know, do your accounts. You've got to write emails. You've got to do all this stuff. And I think there's not enough out there to teach anybody, let alone Indigenous wahine, how to do all of that, mm. you know, you got to, I've just learned on my own and it's hard and it's been hard and just, yeah, more platforms, more sharing, you know, helping each other get there, not being, uh, like not, I don't know, not hiding what you're doing, you know, sharing. So I hope, I hope that there's just more openness mm. for that. I'm really excited to actually be sitting in your studio and seeing in real life the stuff that I get to see in, <laughs> online um, and to see how um, how this really is handmade. Yeah. Like to actually look around and just see every single part of this is made by your hands and it's really beautiful um, to see not only the the outcome, <laughs> the piece of jewellery, but to actually acknowledge the beauty and the crafting of that. Yeah. Um, so, cool. Thank you for doing something really awesome and really different um, with your mahi. And I'm so glad that I got to um, have a corridor with you. Yeah, thank you for coming. <laughs> Kia ora. Kia ora.